Well, good morning. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning. And I know uh, I've seen that you got back into your series in 1 Timothy last week after um, a series on rhythms of renewal, which sounds really interesting. But I love the passage that you looked at last week, and it serves us well to introduce what we're going to talk about this morning. Justin's key idea last week, if you were here and you remember, was faithfulness to the words and ways of Jesus is a matter of life and death. And that's summarized in the last verse of that chapter. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And his outline was resolutions of a good servant and results in a good servant. And this morning, we want to look at, with that kind of lead-in, what those results in a good servant look like in a practical way. How would a good servant behave, instruct, or lead in his sphere or her sphere of influence? And that brings us to today's passage, which you just heard Kay read, 1 Timothy 5, 1-16. And there are two areas that we should see these results manifested in, our relationships and our responsibilities. And one of the processes that I like to follow when I have a chance to preach and it, and it works out is to try to show you how I get my outline and the flow of this sermon so that it might help you in your own personal study and your own understanding of biblical interpretation. So let me kind of start out at a 10,000-foot level and show you how this passage fits the larger context of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. There's an inclusio, which is a theologically complicated way of saying a parenthetical thought between verse 1 of chapter 5 and verse 2 of chapter 6. And it helps us recognize how the author intended to break down what he was writing to his audience. The word that appears at the beginning of each chapter is parakaleo. It means to encourage, to urge, to exhort, to implore. A form of this word actually appeared last week in verse 13, where Timothy was told to read Scripture, exhort, and teach. And now here in chapter 5, Paul is encouraging Timothy to relate to people in a way that is helpful and not hurt, hurtful. Not with a sword, but a scalpel, as one commentator said, echoing Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now back in chapter 4, Paul told Timothy to teach and live out these things. He is now suggesting perhaps the most effective way of doing that. He says in verse 1, do not rebuke, but encourage. When someone rebukes you, you probably act like I do, the hairs on the back of your head kind of stand up. 
You might resist. You might lash out with your own harsh words. Or, in the very least, you may ignore the value of what's said. The same advice, given in the form of encouragement, could be more helpful and a more helpful and motivating way to say the same thing and more likely facilitate change. Then, Paul is going to use three examples or illustrations of what he means here, using widows, elders, and slaves. And for each of these three examples, he's going to give instructions on ways to encourage and instruct these three examples. And at the end, he's going to summarize it all by saying, teach and parakaleo these things. Now, we're going to look at the first example this morning, and Justin will cover the second and third ones next week. So let's bring this down to ground level and look at our first point. How should Timothy, or how should we, relate to each other in our church family relationships? The answer is to relate as if we are a biological family. Now, that might stir some, I don't know, discord in your heart if your personal family life wasn't the best. It wasn't very encouraging or life-giving. But we are new creations in Christ. And we should be able to instantly see the similarity or the contrast between our spiritual family and our birth family. If we didn't have a good biological family situation, God has blessed us with this family that fulfills all that we need. And if we did have a healthy home, we are challenged to realize that this is actually a better family than we even had biologically. I love what one commentator said. Blood may be thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. And the family God has established through Jesus Christ is the Christian's first family. So look around this room. These are your brothers and sisters adopted into this family by your Father in heaven, united by His Spirit to your brother, His Son, Jesus Christ. The Spirit is truly thicker than blood, and the bonds are eternal. Now, I'm sure you've all had troubles in your family. I certainly have. And I've had some significant trouble in my church family, too. And that's unfortunate because that's not the way we're supposed to treat each other. Conflict exposes the hardness of our hearts and the need for our repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. After all, if we can experience all that with our Heavenly Father in our redemption, we can certainly extend that experience to each other. We'll see in a minute that there are other ways that we harm each other in the family, but the point of all this is that we are united in Christ as family, and nothing should be allowed to sully those relationships. Let me put an exclamation on this point by taking a minute and talking about our union with Christ and why 
This is so important to this subject. It's our union with Christ that gives us a new identity wrapped in a new family. One author puts it this way. You are not, you cannot be self-made. Union with Christ tells you that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and others. And those others are all of these sitting around you. So we encourage, we build up, we walk beside, we carry burdens, we intercede for, we live our lives intertwined with each other. And we even eat with each other at our Father's table whenever we have a chance. And this is an... Now, Paul will spend the rest of our passage squeezing out implications of this using widows to illustrate his point. And this is an apt example because all through Scripture, we're told how important widows and orphans, for that matter, are to God. Time and time again, God instructed the care of widows and others as he did, for example, in Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in the field, when you beat your olive trees, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. You sh- it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And in Psalm 68, we read, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. And that home for us is our church family. Now, first, Paul says to widows who are truly widows. What does that mean? Well, the NIV actually translates this, widows who are really in need. The repetition of fatherless and widows and sojourners in our Old Testament verses might suggest that we're talking about people who have no family left. They are totally on their own. The Greek word for widow, chera, refers to any woman without a husband, and not simply to women who have lost a husband through death. Perhaps they've been abandoned. These women are bonded to the heart of God and should be bonded to our heart as well. And the description of truly in need appears three different times in this passage, so it's significant The emphasis is on the need, not so much on how to fulfill the need, because that can be done in multiple and different ways. And now Paul is going to give us three examples to make his point. The first, in verse 4, is one who still has children or grandchildren who can look out for her. But perhaps they're not. Notice the 
imperative verb, let them learn, referring to the family of the widow. Widowhood offers the opportunity for others to grow in godliness besides just the woman who finds herself in this stage of life. The whole family deepens in faith together through the experience. And it's a good lesson for all of us to remember what parents and others have done for us. We should then be ready to repay and return the favor when they have a need to be filled. And certainly parenting is one of those, those areas, right? We grow up, or we're, I should say we're born totally helpless, and as we grow, we're taught to take care of ourselves, we move into independence, and then we start to move into dependence and maybe once again to helplessness. As we were parented, when we were young. So our parents, as they age, certainly change places with us. Some of you are there now, caught between maybe raising your kids or taking care of your grandkids and helping take care of your parents or your grandparents. Paul says that when you serve older loved ones in this way, it is pleasing to God. Is there any better example than this than Jesus on the cross? John 19 tells us that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Paul gives this special emphasis on this opportunity for caring for our first widow example at the end of our passage, the last verse that was read. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really in need. So not only does caring for members of your family benefit your own growth as well as that family member, but it benefits the church, your family in the church, so that it can care for those who don't have those kind of resources available to them. Which brings us to the second type of widow in verse 5. One who is truly alone and puts her hope in God, communing with Him day and night in prayer. This is one who Paul is actually saying we should show double honor to. And notice two distinctive requirements here. Financially destitute and spiritually devoted. Now Kent Hughes makes an interesting observation about this category of widow. Today, the application of this passage should be wider because modern American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow. 
And those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. Age is not the factor here. Need is the factor here. Now, the third widow is just the opposite of the second. She has abandoned her faith and departed the godly life. And being self-absorbed, she really doesn't care for anyone else in need, like our first two examples. And Ezekiel 16 might describe this kind of behavior when it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. This widow is not a part of the family and therefore not availed of, not even interested in getting help from the church. She might actually be in need, but wants nothing to do with God and his family. Paul then summarizes and adds a further note to the families in the first example. But since the church, this church, is also a greater family, I think we can take this to heart also. If we don't provide for our relatives, either biological or spiritual, we are in the same class, the same group as the third widow, given over to apostasy. This is serious business. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 16 to the Pharisees and the scribes when he says, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So as we move on, we do so with serious warnings ringing in our ear. Widows provide a significant illustration of how important our responsibilities are to those in our biological families and our spiritual families. And now we move on to the last section of our passage, spelling out responsibilities of service and support in verses 9 through 16. These verses honestly may have seemed, they certainly seemed confusing to me when I first read them. It looks like, at first glance, that verse 9 is suggesting additional requirements to be a widow in good standing with the church. Now, John Stott and others have suggested that this is not a further description of the same illustration, but a completely new and different level of ministry. These widows are ones who have taken a vow of singleness and have enrolled for service to the church. Now, perhaps an example will help. Anna, in Luke 2, seems to be one of these kinds of widows. She was married for seven years before she was then widowed for over 60 years. And by the time we're introduced to her in Luke 2, she fits this description in verse 9. 
And Luke says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. These widows are ones who have demonstrated the service of good works in their past family life, and now they devote those energies to the church family. So these criteria in verses 9 and 10 look very familiar and similar to what Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 3 about deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And James, in his chapter 1, verse 27, describes the kind of reputation that these widows have. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what a special older woman serving faithfully in the church looks like. Conversely, those who are younger or perhaps need more growth and development, are not included in this group of enrolled widows. Their tendency is still desire marriage. Or perhaps they still get caught up in idleness and careless words and actions. They have not nurtured themselves and matured into bridled tongue or undeceived heart, as James describes that perfect and undefiled religion. And Paul's advice to them is to develop a reputation of good works like those in the other group. And work to avoid the snares of Satan and unrighteous living. Now, as we learned in verse 4, this is for their own benefit, for growth and holiness and godliness. And if you think about it, you might imagine the widows in the enrolled group discipling and nurturing the younger widows. This group of enrolled widows has already demonstrated responsible ministry in service to their church, their family. And the rest of us, like the younger widows, hope and pray that we are growing in that same responsibility. In the end, as we saw before, Paul summarizes this whole passage in the last verse, verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is an exclamation point on this teaching by Paul, and it summarizes a sound division of responsibility based on existing relationships. I love seeing in your bulletin a ministry to widows on Sunday evenings. I think that's a great example of what we're talking about here. So we've talked a lot about widows this morning. Most of you sitting here are not widows or maybe not even caring for widows. So what do we do with all of this? 
If we look at these last 14 verses as an illustration, an example to Timothy of how to tangibly apply the first two verses, then there are, man, lots of applications that we should consider. We are all part of this family, and you are all under the scrutiny and instruction of this word. So let's circle back and see how we could apply these lessons to each of our own lives. In other words, what responsibilities do we have for the relationships that we have in the church? And how does that provide the outlet for the growth and development in us that Justin talked about last week? So I was intrigued to see the banners on your walls, the strategy to fulfill your mission as Parkside Bible Church, delighting in the gospel, growing through relationships, serving our community, sending into the world. And I think our passage today clearly points to the second one, growing through relationships. We have seen instructions throughout this passage of how to grow in godliness and good works through our relationships and service to others. But we've also seen an application of the first one, delighting in the gospel, in the widow that sets her hope in God and communes with him day and night. I think we can agree that these verses can and should also give us broader application in our own situations, in our own relationships. In Paul's letter to Titus, we see a fleshing out in more detail of what these two verses, verse 5-1 and 5-2, suggest. One commentator calls this the Titus 2 plan, to achieve how we might encourage each other in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, as Paul wrote back in chapter 4. Let's encourage older men to be sober-minded, self-controlled, dignified, sound in their faith and their love and their steadfastness. Likewise, we can encourage younger men to be self-controlled too and to be a model of good works. Older women can be encouraged to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, but teach what is good and train young women, who in turn can be encouraged to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, and a good manager of the home and household. So looking at all these attributes... What jumps out at you? Well, it looks like to me that if we encourage self-control, it impacts everyone. And we'll go a long way in pleasing the Lord as grace spreads through our church family. Next, as I said earlier, serving each other is the fertile soil of growing in godliness. And we learn this firsthand by doing it. 
This echoes instruction in Deuteronomy 17 when we learn God's words by doing them. And the law shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. You can listen to all these ways to serve God's family, but until you commit to do them, they will not sink into your heart. This learn-by-doing idea is a key educational philosophy developed by John Dewey. Take, for example, a skill development exercise like riding your bike. How did you learn to ride your bike? Did you study in a classroom and take a test to prove that you understand the steps needed and then just get on your bike and do it? No, I don't know anybody that does that. You hopped on your bike and you failed multiple times until you succeeded. Now, you might have had help at various times, but until you discovered your own balance, your own need for forward movement, and carved in a few neural network uh, paths of thinking, trial and error served your purposes. And you learned to ride a bike by riding a bike. Another opportunity to learn by doing is communing with God in prayer and supplication. The more we enjoy God's presence in our life, the more we discover and desire His presence more and more. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And this ultimately leads us to setting our hope on God through faith. And as we recognize moments of God's active involvement in our activities, our hopes and dreams, our suffering, we begin to see more and more of His active presence in other ways of our life. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says. We discover comfort in his presence, peace in his care, and freedom by his spirit. Is it any wonder that as we commune with the Lord, we set our hope more and more on God, as our widow illustrated in verse 5? And this draws us into sharing all of this with others in the family. We call this discipleship. And to, fil to facilitate our growth in godliness, it's helpful to spend time with older and mature believers. And let me suggest that you get to know several older, more mature believers and zero in on one who displays strengths in his or her life that you want to improve in your life. 
And my suggestion has, is always for the younger to approach the older for two reasons. Number one, it's easier to recognize this kind of behavior in an older Christian. As our one widow demonstrated, you, she had a reputation because of her consistency of, of action. And secondly, it shows a level of commitment to that older believer because no one wants to spend time pouring into another life that is half-hearted about the process. Verse 10 also speaks again of good works. So let's, let's talk a minute again about good works and how they form discipleship. When we do good works, they encourage our brothers and sisters. They motivate them in turn to bless others. And they establish relationships, key relationships in the church family that are based on gratitude and encouragement. Whether it's encouraging widows in need, as our example suggests, or just helping a, a young mom who's overwhelmed with the week's schedule of special activities and commitments, or it's working on a, with a brother on his car because you know more about doing that than he does. Or maybe it's just sharing a ride with somebody. Any and all opportunities, no matter how small, are valued and appreciated. Romans 12.10 encourages us to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. You can never do too many good works to encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith. And finally, find opportunities to disciple someone else younger than yourself or newer in the faith. Just as Paul's letter to Timothy is pouring into the life of a younger believer, so every one of us are called to do the same. Paul will later write to Timothy these words. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's a multiplication effect in discipleship. Church family life is discipleship life. And there are many natural ways that we do this. The most natural is parenting and grandparenting. That's discipleship. It is the biological family's first responsibility to be the primary disciplers and the church family to be the supporting role in that process. So parents... Grandparents, what intentional and active steps do you take to disciple your kids and grandchildren? A book we've been using in our church is Justin Early's book, Habits of the Household. There is an amazing chapter in that book 
on, on discipline as discipleship. But there are great things in the other chapters as well. I would encourage you to take an intentional role in discipleship. There's, yeah, there's lots of ideas there. Beyond the natural roles that we play at home, look for opportunities to impact others in various stages of your life. Even if it's just short touches and contacts, just one little step at a time. The church I pastored in Michigan uh, used the book, The Trellis and the Vine, and the subsequent book, The Vine Project, in our discipleship. And the perspective that I loved about those books is a roadmap it created for our church family. Imagine this. We are all on a spectrum of life. We're either far from God, over here, in which case, you and I can engage with that person at any level and try to move them one step closer to the next stage, which is they are suddenly interested in God. At which stage, we would evangelize and introduce them to what it means to be a Christian in the blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ. Once they've been rescued and united to Christ, now we're over here. We've moved over here into this part of the spectrum. Our role now is to disciple them in a way that establishes their faith and strengthens their faith. And then to move them to be even further transformed in equipping them for ministry. Engage, evangelize, establish, equip. We should all be advancing ourselves on this spectrum and equipping others to help others do the same. Our goal in discipleship is to help every person in our life move one step closer to the next stage that God's moving them to. I remember years ago, and I don't even know if this is totally accurate, but I remember hearing the statistic that every uh, person who comes to Christ has, is touched at least 21 different times with some form of the gospel. If that's true, and you look at it that way, you realize that it's not only easier to imagine the goal of moving everyone one step closer, but it's easier to implement that kind of lifestyle in your life. So look at this list and think about what you can do this morning before you leave. Then think about another one that you can take home and concentrate on this week. Encourage. Learn by doing. Intentionally grow. Disciple and be discipled. Bless others. Sounds like family life, doesn't it? It's not just about widows. 
although they're obviously important, widows that is, it's all about the relationships in the body of Christ and the responsibilities that you have in this family. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, for the opportunity to study it together, and the privilege to let your spirit press in on our hearts and breathe life into the areas of application that transform us. May we encourage one another, grow in faith and godliness, honor and bless one another by serving them, and may we seek out brothers and sisters to be in discipleship relationships with. In so doing, we desire to make our church body more like a family. Finally, Lord, will you reveal your presence to us as we meditate on what we've heard and we commit to put into practice what we've understood. As Paul exhorted Timothy, our desire is to practice these things, immerse ourselves in them so that all may see our progress. Now focus our minds, settle our hearts to reflect on all that we've experienced this morning in song, in prayer, and in study of your word. Bring to mind the most important things for each one of us here. Help us turn those over in our minds, push them down into our hearts. Give us power to commit to change and transformation and endurance to stay the course. Then, as we turn our thoughts towards your family table, unite our hearts and help us to remember and proclaim. As Andrew Peterson wrote, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Help us to remember his blood and body broken for us, and then proclaim his death until he comes. He's coming back again. Hallelujah and amen.